Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. Crystal and I would like to welcome everyone to our program today, Life with Graft versus Host Disease, GVHD, Post-Allogeneic Stem Cell or Bone Marrow Transplantation, New Treatment Approaches. And today's program is really an amazing program. It's great to have you all on the call today. Um, we Actually, um, this program today, this, act, this activity is supported by Pharmacyclics LLC and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support. Uh, today's program is also a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations, and um, so that... Um, we really have quite a few of you on the call today, actually lots of you, and I have to say that it's really because of your interest in the program today, but also as well, it is um, because of all of the help in, in helping you spread the word about the program. There's a lot of uh, great, great groups to tell you about the program. So we have on the program today over 300 participants. You come from all over the United States. And you, we also, and from both urban, rural, urban, suburban, and uh, and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, England, Germany, Norway, Russia, and Switzerland. So this is a bit of a global call. And really, it's a credit to all of you that you're choosing to spend the next hour with us. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Samar Alhamsi. And Dr. Alhamsi is Professor of Clinical Medicine, New York University, Director of Blood and Marrow Transplantation, Pulmonic Cancer Center, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Alhamsi is going to be addressing a definition of graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, post-allogeneic stem cell or bone marrow transplantation, understanding how GVHD develops, including finding GVHD early, Types of GVHD, chronic and acute, common signs and symptoms of GVHD in the context of COVID-19, and current standard of care for managing GVHD, including prophylaxis and prevention. And it's really now my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Alhamsi. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, I'd like to thank you um, and Cancer Care for putting together this kind of informational event. Um, I'm a true believer that from patients' point of view, knowledge is not only power, but also a very good treatment of anxiety and fear of the unknown. Um, as you just said, Carolyn, uh, my task today is to explain uh, what uh, graft-versus-host disease or GVHD for brief is, and to discuss the different types of GVHD, and also touch base on the standard emerging forms of treatment. And because preventing GVHD is the best way to treat it, I'll certainly say a few words about uh, prevention of GVHD. GVHD is the most common complication after donor or what you call allogeneic blood and marrow uh, uh, cell transplantation. It's certainly the main cause of treatment-related mortality after the procedure. And besides that, it certainly represents a significant burden on patients um, and families after allogeneic transplant with an impact on quality of life. Um, let me just explain what allogeneic blood and marrow transplantation is so people can understand why GVHD uh, does occur and what it is. Essentially, what allogeneic blood and marrow transplantation is the transfer of donor blood-forming cells, known as hematopoietic stem cells, but also transfer of uh, what we call lymphocytes from a donor and these cells are uh, essentially a new immune system. Uh, immune systems are uh, basically uh, designed to recognize and attack what's not self or identical to self. Therefore, when we are transferring a new immune system into the recipient from the donor, uh, basically, you know, the immune system of the donor is going to um, uh, recognize the recipient's tissues and organs 
as foreign and attack them. And this is the whole uh, concept of GVHD. So essentially when the recipient is attacking the donor, this is rejection. When the donor is attacking recipient, this is when uh, you get uh, GVHD. Um, in other words, GVHD is a complication of a lesionic blood and marrow transplantation uh, where the donor immune cells attack the patient uh, or recipient tissues and cause a variety of uh, problems. It's important to know that GVHD is not necessarily bad. Uh, GVHD is actually a result of certain degree of incompatibility between the donor and the recipient. Um, and actually this degree of incompatibility is important to control the disease because this immune attack of the donor cells that I mentioned that results in GVHD is actually the same attack uh, essentially that recognize the recipient's disease and attack it. Let's say the recipient has uh, a form of leukemia. These donor cells, immune cells, would attack also these uh, uh, leukemia cells and prevent uh, relapse. Um, and this is why there is always a balance in uh, allogeneic BMT between the GVHD and between what we call graft versus disease effects that allow us essentially, you know, to cure the disease. Again, you know, that means that GVHD is not all bad, and some mild form of GVHD is actually not a bad uh, thing to happen, as I will discuss um, in a second. In terms of forms of GVHD, GVHD comes basically in uh, two forms, uh, what we call acute GVHD and chronic GVHD. And as indicated by the names, acute GVHD uh, comes suddenly, and unless treated, progresses rapidly. Uh, on the other hand, chronic GVHD is more insidious um, uh, of, uh, with a sneaky onset, if you will, and typically uh, lasts longer. Timing-wise, acute GVHD develops early in the post-transplant period, um, let's say three, four months after transplantation, while chronic GVHD uh, does occur at a later time and sometimes you know, as late as two or even three years after a transplant. This distinction in terms of timing uh, has become in the recent years with the evolution of the way we do transplantation, especially the decreased intensity of conditioning that we do before transplant. This distinction has become less clear and it's not uncommon to see acute GVHD happening at a later time. And sometimes you hear us talk about late onset acute GVHD. We do also see what we call an overlap syndrome, again, sort of, you know, in between acute and GVHD with manifestations of both, and we would call it, you know, uh, overlap GVHD. So again, this distinction of acute versus chronic GVHD based on timing only is no longer true, although it's still uh, accurate that most uh, uh, patients would experience acute GVHD early, uh, you know, during the first three, four months, like I said, after transplantation and chronic GVHD sort of comes later, but this clear distinction in particular in terms of timing is less clear in our days. The true difference really between acute and chronic GVHD is in the manifestations. Acute GVHD is sort of intense inflammatory process that affects essentially the uh, skin with uh, angry redness of the skin, if you wish, uh, the guts uh, with nausea and vomiting, and the lower part of the guts was essentially uh, profound diarrhea. Acute GVHD uh, also sometimes affects uh, the liver with yellow discoloration of the eyes or jaundice or abnormal blood tests that your physician would, uh, would see uh, when he or she uh, does routine blood tests. Chronic GVHD, on the other hand, uh, is sort of more autoimmune process with scarring being the hallmark of the uh, disorder. It's a more heterogeneous uh, uh, disorder uh, with very different uh, kind of uh, symptoms and signs, and these can affect essentially any organ uh, in the body from head to toes, with the most commonly affected organs being uh, uh, the skin, uh, uh, the eyes, uh, the mouth, and the joints with sort of limitation of the range of motion and so on. But like I said, essentially any um, organ uh, uh, or tissue in the body can be uh, affected. 
In terms of prevention of GBHD, the standard of care is some variation or a combination um, of a class of agents we call calcineurin inhibitors, in addition to a drug called methotrexate. That would be the most commonly used uh, regimen. Uh, the standard of care is four or five decades old. Since we started doing transplantation, this has been essentially you know, uh, the most commonly used regimen to prevent GHG. Unfortunately, by no means, by any stretch of imagination, this is a satisfactory uh, regimen because many patients, despite the routine use of this prevention regimen, still experience some form of GHG. Calcineurin inhibitors are also problematic to use uh, with many drug interactions and number of side effects. Fortunately, we are finally witnessing in our days progress in the area of uh, prevention. For instance, the repurposing of an older drug called cyclophosphamide uh, uh, that increases the so-called regulatory T cells, which essentially tune down uh, uh, the immune um, attack of the donor cells, um, uh, which ultimately results in GVHD is very promising, and actually some of us believe uh, that this might become soon uh, the standard of care once the ongoing uh, confirmatory clinical trials are completed. Other agents uh, which have become uh, very interesting for the prevention of GVHD includes a class of agents called prednisone inhibitors used to suppress uh, dendritic cells. These are critical cells for the initiation of the cascade uh, of events that ultimately uh, leads to the development of GVHD. Furthermore, with the improvement of our understanding of GHD, we can now target other important players in the development of GVHD, such as cytokines, or we can prevent donor lymphocytes from migrating and homing in the guts. As I mentioned, guts are an important uh, target for acute GVHD, um, and these drugs are called integrin inhibitors, and my co-speaker, Dr. Uh, Chen, um, uh, knows all about that. Ourselves, few years ago, we became interested in using some of the new agents I mentioned earlier to develop a regimen for the prevention of GVHD that potentially could eliminate the need of calcineurin inhibitors altogether, and we are certainly very excited about that. In terms of therapy, um, as I said earlier, uh, not all GVHD is bad, and it's not uncommon for a physician for the most, uh, uh, you know, for the mild cases, not to treat and decide just to wait and watch a patient um, or eventually to give simple treatments such as topical treatments. And again, like I said, a lot of the mild cases um, uh, would result spontaneously and do not require any specific treatments. Um, and of course, uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, mild uh, GVHD is not necessarily a bad thing and it's typically associated with lower risk of disease relapse, let it be leukemia, lymphoma, or any other disease that's being treated by uh, allogeneic DNT. Ultimately, if the physician decides to treat, uh, the standard of care uh, for both acute and chronic GVHD is based on steroids. Uh, as you probably know, these are very powerful anti-inflammatory drugs, um, and they remain in our days uh, the main drugs that we use to treat acute or chronic GVHD. Again, unfortunately, uh, they are not always effective, um, and some patients might not respond to treatments. Furthermore, uh, the use of these drugs, in particular when they are given for extended period of time, is associated with a number of side effects. Um, you know, in terms of treatments, although progress has been slow to come for decades, uh, we are now uh, entering a very exciting phase and seeing the emergence of a number of uh, new drugs um, which are effective um, in the management of acute GVHD, in particular those that do not respond to steroids. These agents include uh, JAK1 and 2 inhibitors and a drug called Ibrutinib, and actually some of these agents um, are already FDA approved for the treatment of GVHD. Integrin inhibitors that I mentioned earlier uh, that prevent the lymphocytes from homing and uh, uh, residing in the guts uh, for acute GVHD uh, are also important for the treatment of acute GVHD. Uh, and hopefully we'll hear more about that uh, in a second from Dr. Uh, Chen. 
the last thing I'd like to mention when we are talking about management of GVHD um, is that uh, supportive care, in particular in the case of chronic GVHD, is very important. Uh, let it be simple measures such as keeping the skin moist or protecting the skin from the sun. In case of the GVHD, chronic GVHD of the eyes, using artificial tears or protecting the eyes from dust is also important. Topical therapies I mentioned earlier, typically uh, steroid lotions uh, or creams are also um, important. Physical therapy, because sometimes chronic GVHD would affect the joints and you would have sort of limitation of, joint, uh, of, of range of motion. So physical therapy early in the course of chronic GVHD is equally um, important. Um, also, the last thing that's extremely important for chronic GVHD management, uh, the, the immune system weakness is a hallmark of chronic GVHD, and it's not uncommon for patients to develop infections, and therefore, uh, uh, let it be healthy diet or infusion of immunoglobulins or administration of certain drugs, antimicrobials, are extremely important to prevent uh, uh, infections. I think, Karen, I'm going to stop uh, here. I hope I covered all what you wanted me to cover. I'd be more than happy uh, to participate later in the uh, question and answer uh, part of the, uh, of the session. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Alhamsi. That was really outstanding, just an outstanding presentation, and also just um, really the whole overview of GDHD so everyone can understand more about it and also um, its potential treatment. And, and so thank you, and, and, and we do look forward to uh, your being on for the Q&A as well. I'm sure there will be lots of questions. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Yibin Chen. Dr. Chen is Director, Blood and Marrow Transplant BMT Program, Cara J. Rogers Endowed Scholar, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, Associate Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. Dr. Chen will be addressing new and promising treatment approaches for GVHD, clinical trial updates, how research increases treatment options in the, in the context of, of COVID-19, key questions to ask your healthcare team about GVHD and follow-up care, including telehealth appointments and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chen. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, uh, for the kind introduction. Uh, uh, thank you all for joining today during these uh, sort of uncertain times. Um, I'll try my best to summarize uh, the agenda before me, but um, certainly I look forward to the uh, interactive Q&A session to best help. So, uh, Graf vs. Associates uh, has been really nicely summarized by my colleague, Dr. Al Holmesy, and I'm going to touch a little bit on newer treatments and the importance of research and then talk a little bit about uh, sort of what COVID-19 uh, has done to all of this and the implications for such. I think uh, even though many of us feel like we can recognize Graf vs. Associates clinically and can apply our standards of care, I think all of us in the field would agree that it remains a huge unmet need. Uh, certainly, as as we get better at treating all the uh, acute complications of transplantation, we have many survivors who are plagued with both acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease in the long run. Uh, in, in the last five years, we're, we're actually fortunate in that there's, there's actually been a good amount of research that has developed. Uh, companies have certainly taken an interest into our field, and that, that has only helped fund all the important research that we're all trying to do. Um, I'll start with acute graft versus host disease. In terms of newer treatments, I think many of you are aware for acute graft versus host disease, uh, about a year ago, the FDA issued its first approval uh, for a drug called ruxolitinib, uh, which falls in the class of drugs that Dr. Elholmsy was mentioning called the JAK inhibitors. Uh, and it, this, this certainly has changed some standards of care, and it's been very exciting because it's opened up at least areas of investigation for us and access to agents for our patients to ultimately improve outcomes. Certainly a lot more research on JAK inhibitors is being done in terms of can we move it earlier in therapy. Uh, there are other JAK inhibitors that, that may work better, uh, and all those trials are ongoing right now. Uh, Dr. Alhomzi also mentioned uh, integrant inhibitors such as vedolizumab, uh, which is approved for the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. These classes of drugs uh, work in an interesting way in that they control the way your white blood cells circulate in your body and thus would hopefully um, 
you're able to intelligently direct them, you wouldn't impair the immune response uh, very much at all, but rather uh, be able to divert cells away from areas of interest. There are other agents being studied. I'll just mention a few just so people understand. There's um, an antibody that targets CD6 made by a company called Equilium. There is a protein uh, uh, called alpha-1 antitrypsin, which has been studied and shown good promise and is a subject of national trials for treating graft-versus-host disease. There's a whole field that has, that has suggested that our blood vessels are targets of graft-versus-host disease, and if we minimize the inflammation or injury in our blood vessels, perhaps we can treat graft-versus-host disease better. Uh, our colleagues at the University of Minnesota have published recent evidence using human chorionic gonadotropin, you know, the, the, the hormone in the pregnancy test that we use uh, that to, to help with graft-versus-host disease in repairing uh, the lining of our intestines. And then really it, it gets into the, the intestine or the gut as being the central organ that is most troublesome in acute graft-versus-host disease. And recent models in mice would illustrate the, the biology of why uh, we need to prevent and treat uh, the gut very early to preserve ultimately the ability for our gut to heal and regenerate. And there's a lot of research going on into how to do that and protecting the gut. A lot of it has to do with implications for what we call the microbiome or the diversity of bacteria that we all harbor in our intestine and how can we keep that healthy, how do we maintain the lining of our gut during the transplant process. And so I think all of us are looking forward to the results of these trials as we uh, in, in the next couple of years to hopefully better be able to treat um, and also prevent graft-versus-host disease. For, for chronic graft-versus-host disease, many of you are aware in the last two years that the drug Ibrutinib was approved, also the first drug approved for chronic graft-versus-host disease. Uh, and there are two other main classes of drugs that, that most of us are expecting approval in the upcoming years, and that involves JAK inhibitors as well which certainly not only work uh, for a subset of patients in acute graft-versus-host disease, but also in chronic. And then there's excitement over a drug called KD-025. I'm sure that will have a much better name when it gets approved, but that's made by a company called Cadmin, and it, it targets a certain pathway that functions in, in the scarring that Dr. L. Holmesy was mentioning when talking about chronic graft-versus-host disease. Um, my summary for the newer treatments is that uh, certainly we're moving in the right direction. We've moved away uh, from the historical treatments of globally suppressing the immune system and evolved into models of uh, targeting certain inflammatory pathways. And in that way, we've spared the immune system and our treatments have become less toxic for patients and hopefully more successful. And I think all of us in the years to come I uh, look forward to the results of the trials we're doing now and hopefully can get more approvals uh, to help our patients. Um, I'm going to transition now to how, how research has helped. I think by discussing the ongoing trials, one can understand why we need participation in these trials and why uh, trials are still sort of a high priority for, for uh, the, our centers that are doing a lot of uh, transplants for our patients. The the frank reality remains, as many of you know, that if you are diagnosed with acute or chronic graft-versus-host disease, that systemic steroids, such as prednisone, are still first line. And that, that unfortunately, hasn't changed in 30-plus in years of, of the transplant field being fairly active. And even though many patients will respond to steroids, uh, probably less than 50% will, uh, will not need another agent. So more than half of patients will need something else due to either failure of the steroids or just lack of a satisfactory long-term response. Uh, and as I said, historically, we would add on just more uh, what we called systemic immunosuppression, so more knocking down an immune system that, that led to long-term toxicities and opportunistic infections, uh, which, which weren't so good. And the modern, modern more evolved uh, agents that we're trying are all looking at different pathways or specific pathways that have less side effects. And and examples are the drugs that have been approved, such as ruxolitinib and abrutinib. In acute graft-versus-host disease, the main drive or the main models for how we'll succeed moving forward in trials is that the realization that not all patients with acute GVHD are the same. A patient with a mild skin rash that covers about 60% of their body surface area is entirely and most likely biologically different than someone who presents with leaders and leaders of diarrhea. 
And so the ability to be able to prognosticate or predict how our patients are going to do uh, clinically uh, is, is super powerful. And uh, we're all doing research and trying to figure out if there are certain not only clinical manifestations, but more accurately uh, blood tests or what we call biomarkers that can help uh, risk stratify our patients. The goals would be that our high-risk patients, we would do clinical trials where we would give steroids because we think they're necessary, um, possibly yet another drug on top of that to improve response rates overall. On the contrary, in our low-risk patients who we think will do really well biologically and clinically, uh, we may even try and omit steroids or use a lower dose of steroids uh, or, or use a different agent altogether and, um, you know, uh, save the patient exposure to steroids, or even if we started steroids, uh, lower them faster, what we call a more rapid taper. And as we learn more about these biomarkers, some will hopefully allow us to uh, will allow us a better judge response, meaning we're able to send a blood test and understand how patients are doing rather than just look at someone's uh, clinical behavior. And we hope that all of these trials that are ongoing will allow us to become much more uh, evolved and intelligent in how we manage graft-versus-host disease. For chronic graft-versus-host disease, I think a lot of it is still in trying to figure out how we can best classify, how we can best communicate uh, the disease process because it is so heterogeneous and variable between patients. Chronic graft-versus-host disease can affect so many organs in so many different ways, and the uh, ability for us to judge how someone is doing uh, is not is not great. And even though we've developed criteria that we've come to consensus on, uh, it still requires us uh, a lot of time to do that. It's still wholly inaccurate. So a lot of research is being done to refine that. Certainly, uh, different agents are being studied in hopes to spare patients long-term steroids and the toxicities of such that, that all of us know so well. In the era of COVID-19, I think it's, 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 it's tough to give uh, firm guidelines. Uh, certainly, I think different parts of the country have been differentially affected. Um, many trials that uh, were open are now closed or at least paused, and that's been due to choices of companies. Uh, that's also been uh, choices of institutions that are trying to preserve resources for the most necessary care uh, during this crisis that no one could have um, planned for. Here, at least in Boston, uh, we are still carrying out uh, clinical trials that we deem to be essential or disease-changing, and so that would include all of our trials that are active for treating uh, or preventing graft-versus-host disease. We still believe here that, uh, you know, that with the proper social distancing, uh, protective equipment, and precautions that we can care for patients and still do clinical trials uh, and so forth. So we still, if if, if we had a new patient, uh, or a patient with new uh, graft-versus-host disease and they qualified for a trial, uh, we would still offer such uh, for participation at the moment. Certainly for clinical trials right now, every center has adjusted schedule of assessments uh, in terms of what's necessary and what isn't taking into account where we are, as well as uh, workarounds such as uh, mailing of drugs uh, that are uh, for patients who are on oral drugs long-term and so forth. Uh, to minimize exposure uh, for our patients. But I still think it's, I think we still think it's important even in the current climate to continue with our important research uh, in graft versus host disease. Touching upon telehealth, I think it's, uh, you know, clearly our medical system for a lot of reasons was, was not really built for this in terms of infrastructure, tradition, and everything else. I, I think some some transplant sites certainly had telehealth informally set up already. These are sites that uh, served a large catchment area, and so many patients came from far away. And so telehealth was a necessity uh, for patients in the long run. Here, here in Boston, we, we were not set up for that. Uh, we, we prided ourselves in our longitudinal in-person in visits, and, uh, you know, and that, that was the tradition of medicine for us. Um, partly was for medical care, and a lot of my relationships with my patients were, were also very social, I think something that was mutually enjoyed. However, now I think we are in, in this climate, obviously, um, we are, we're forced to do telehealth uh, for the good of everyone in terms of minimizing exposures. Um, and this is not something that's just going to go away. I think we all have understood that, that the downhill 
part of this will be a lot slower than the climb and that telehealth is going to be here. Telehealth or virtual visits will, will be here for a good proportion of our patients. Uh, certainly some patients who live far away have found this quite convenient, uh, not only to drive into Boston, but then dealing with all the traffic around my hospital and the parking. So I understand that. Uh, but I think as, as I remind people uh, when I see them over Zoom or through a phone call, uh, my assessment is not comprehensive in this way, and I need them to uh, to really talk to me about symptoms and try and tell me everything that he or she is feeling. Uh, certainly, a virtual visit uh, does not replace certain the uh, specialty labs that we need, as well as comprehensive assessments that include looking at a rash, feeling someone's skin, judging range of motion of joints. Uh, things like pulmonary function tests, a mouth exam, or an eye exam. And, and all of these at some point are, are fairly essential to how we view acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. So I, I view our virtual visits right now as screening tools uh, to see if I really need to see the patient uh, for an assessment. And I, and I, and I really hope that patients are, are being completely honest with me over these virtual platforms because I, I can't um, underestimate, uh, you know, what it uh, that that we shouldn't let graft versus host disease fester if we can make a diagnosis and start treating it. Lastly, I'm just going to touch on quality of life concerns. You know, I think what we know from large studies is uh, patients who are survivors of transplant and have been uh, fortunately cured from their malignancy that chronic graft versus host disease is is the single biggest determinant of long-term quality of life. And I think that's been realized. It's been realized so much that every major chronic graft-versus-host disease clinical trial, either done to our cooperative groups or done by companies, now has what we call PROs, and these are patient-reported outcomes. And this is how we measure quality of life. And these are, I think we're also working on standardized instruments, instruments being surveys or metrics for how we truly judge quality of life. Obviously, they have to be somewhat customized to our patient population and our treatment paradigms. Uh, but clearly, uh, I think that quality of life has made it onto the agenda, which is big. Um, it's allowed us to uh, focus on not only having our patients live longer, but live better. And I think quality of life in terms of using these instruments will eventually be part of uh, primary endpoints and outcomes uh, for chronic graft versus host uh, therapies moving forward. Uh, and there are already conversations with the FDA of approvals uh, being hinged on quality of life assessments. Uh, you know, and I think having those be part of the discussion means that we've come a long way uh, to definitely improve quality of life for our patients. Uh, so on that note, uh, I will stop for now and look forward to uh, the question and answer part. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chen. That was outstanding uh, and, and very, very comprehensive. Uh, I think everyone could sit back and really listen to your the details that you provided and incredibly helpful. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Paige Soleimani. She is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she's going to talk about the issues of coping with social distancing, some of the concerns that people have, and Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services, including support groups. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Soleimani. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. As Dr. Messner mentioned, my name is Paige Soleimani, and I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. As an oncology social worker, I provide support services to individuals and their loved ones who are impacted by a cancer diagnosis. I also stay informed of challenging trends and new knowledge in the field in order to provide the best care possible to those who use our services. Recently, many of you have been asked to abide by social distancing to prevent the spread and prevent getting infected by coronavirus. As a result of this, many may feel isolated and alone during this very unpredictable time. Feeling isolated and alone are these normal feelings as biologically humans are meant to be social with each other. To help with social dis distancing, I've been encouraging my clients to use technology to in touch with their loved ones, either by connecting via phone calls, text messaging, video chatting, or using other social media outlets. This is something I would encourage our listeners to do as well. 
Today, we've been talking about ways to manage your care, and I'd like to speak about the importance of creating a social ne- a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be part of your network. Cancer Care is the leading national organization dedicated to provide free professional support services, including counseling, support groups, education workshops, publications, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. All our services are provided by oncology social workers and world-leading cancer experts. At Cancer Care, our licensed oncology social workers are trained in how how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual and their loved ones and supports. A cancer diagnosis comes with many challenges, including financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact in care. Our social workers are knowledgeable and can address the full scope of these issues that cancer patients and their supports may face. Our short-term ca- cancer-focused individual counseling and supportive and support groups are available to those diagnosed with cancer as well as for loved ones or caregivers to address these concerns. These are offered in person in New York and New Jersey area and over the phone and online nationally. Working one-on-one with an oncology social worker and individual counseling can offer a space that's just yours to express your concerns. It also provides a space to help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones or your medical team, among other challenges that may arise. Your social worker can also work with you to address your concerns in a way that is tailored to your individual needs. Joining a support group offers the opportunity to speak with others who may be experiencing similar issues and navigating similar challenges. Additionally, it may also be a space to both gather and provide support and obtain valuable information. We offer several support groups at Cancer Care. Some of the support groups that may be helpful for our listeners to know are the blood cancer online support group, um, the patient multiple myeloma online support group, and our caregiver stem cell bone marrow transplant caregiver support group. These support groups can be accessed online through our website, and our support group cycle is starting June 1st, 2020, but anyone can um, can register anyway through our website um, until July 15th. A cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming, and having support and guidance as well as establishing A support network of trusted people can help relieve feelings of anxiety that may come up. Having this support can also reduce feelings of loneliness and can help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. In addition to our short-term cancer-focused support services, we also provide additional services, including education workshops, reading material, as well as limited financial support. If you're interested in learning more about our support services, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at one 800 813-4673 to speak to an oncology social worker. You may also want to take a look at our website, which is www.cancercare.org. And if you call our 1-800-HOPELINE number, you could speak to a cancer care social worker about what led you to um, uh, looking us up and also how we could offer support. Um, We could also um, we could also Uh, provide resources to access clinical trials, financial assistance, and potential supports uh, local to you. Thank you so much for your attention and opportunity to speak today, and I will now turn the program back to Dr. Messner. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Salmani. That was excellent and a wonderful description of all the different services and also the challenges of social distancing and your recommendations of how people might really want to cope with that. So thank you. Um, And I think there may be questions for you as well during the Q&A. And so we now do have uh, time for questions. Um, I'm going to ask that um, Crystal bring all of our speakers on board, and we're and she will describe to you how to queue up for questions. And uh, we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. So thank you to our speakers for allowing for that time that we have for questions. Uh, Crystal, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star and then one now. And we have a question in front of our online participants. It's for Dr. Chen. Um, can you please elaborate more on 
KDO25 and how, and how close are we to having drug approval? And what are the side effects compared to Brutinib and Jacophy? Thank you. I can try. Uh, okay. Dr. Holmes, he's welcome to jump in as well, uh, depending on his experience with the agent. So that KDO25 has, has, has only been tested in uh, two large clinical trials. Uh, we've been a part of one of those clinical trials, and so I, I, I have uh, experience with only a few patients, but I've certainly talked to the company and the investigators and have been at the presentations of the research in itself. Uh, so the bottom line to your question of when are we going to get approval is I don't know mainly because I think we're expecting approval sometime this year, meaning 2020 calendar year, but what, what the COVID-19 pandemic has done to all of that is a bit unclear. You know, So I think that COVID-19 has obviously catastrophically uh, altered the course of uh, the world, uh, and so certainly approval for not what we will call non-essential medications for, for COVID at the moment, certainly uh, included. And so I'm not sure what the timelines are now. We were given a rough sort of guess based on things of sometime in the calendar year 2020 based on uh, the most recent clinical trial results, which were supposed to be presented in Spain at the European Transplant Conferences uh, in March, at the end of March, which which were obviously canceled. Um, so so it, it really is tough to know. Uh, I... KDO25, I, I will say it's not um, – it doesn't appear to be a home run in the sense that it's not It's not like a magic pill, That, but but it certainly appears to help a subset of patients with chronic graft-versus-host disease, um, though I think we all need more data to understand what – and to characterize what that actual benefit is. In terms of uh, side effects, it, it appears to be quite safe. Um, I think it is less – I think the main side effect with anything for chronic or for any graft versus host disease we worry about is additional immunosuppression. Uh, it certainly appears to be less immunosuppressive uh, from data as well as sort of the mechanism of action. It appears to be less immunosuppressive than abrutinib and Jacopy, and so it, it's, it's less harmful in that way. Uh, it didn't have a lot of uh, physical significant side effects. There was a little signal of liver test elevation, but those are all difficult to know in this population, and it looked to be a fairly safe, uh, safe agent to use. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Alhamsi, do you want to add anything to that? No, I don't have anything to add. Okay. There was a question for you, Dr. Alhamsi, um, from one of our online participants. So interested in learning about GDHD involving eyes, skin, and other organs. If you could comment on that. Although you have addressed some of this already, but if you could say a bit more. Sure. Uh, so as I said, chronic GDHD is sort of heterogeneous disorder, um, and the manifestations are uh, uh, varies enormously. And like I said, the skin and the eyes are very commonly involved. Uh, you know, the skin, uh, there are essentially, in my mind, uh, two types of manifestations. You know, one's in form of sort of uh, uh, skin uh, rash that's typically, you know, in form of raised lesions with some scaling. Uh, they tend to be purple in color and shiny and so on. And the other type of manifestation is sort of more uh, similar to the disease uh, called scleroderma, where we have basically, you know, uh, scarring, tightening uh, of the skin, and, you know, sort of uh, the skin becomes uh, fixed to the deep structure and, uh, uh, you know, if neglected, ultimately could, could start uh, with ulcerations. You know, the main manifestations of the eye is basically from uh, the lack of uh, 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 tears, and this is dryness, can be simple, you know, feeling of dry eyes, or even sort of feeling of sand in the eyes, and again, you know, in the most severe cases, because of this dryness, especially if the eyes are not protected, it results in uh, ulcerations, you know, of the membranes of the eyes. Um, so these are basically, you know, the skin um, um, and uh, eye manifestations of the, of the chronic GVHD. I hope I answered the question. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, so now a question for Dr. Um, Chen. Um, I have weight loss. 
um, stiff joints and rashes two months after my transplant. If my body doesn't recover soon, should I think about systemic treatment? Are there side effects? Uh, I mean, that, so that's tough to tough to truly opine comprehensively uh, from that. I think uh, certainly I would defer to your transplant physician or your transplant team who has who has seen you at baseline and noticed uh, these uh, new or subacute complications. I think the question is really what what's the underlying cause for all this. So it's not um, it's not unusual to have. I think you mentioned lack of appetite uh, still this soon after transplant. And that, that is generally, um, while that could be very mild uh, upper GI graft versus host disease, it, it usually is just residual toxicity from the transplant process as well as all the new medicines that you're on. Uh, stiff joints are common from being inactive for a period of time, depending on how long you're confined in the hospital for transplant and now trying to get active again. While stiff joints can be a manifestation of chronic graft versus host disease, as Dr. Holmes had talked about, it, you're only two months after transplant, so this would uh, most likely not not be graft versus host disease as a manifestation. Uh, and then the rash, you know, the, while rash is a uh, very common uh, manifestation of acute graft versus host disease, I think we've all had skin rashes uh, that are not graft versus host disease, and so it it really uh, begs to have this assessed and asking your transplant team what what they think the etiology of these symptoms are. Uh, it doesn't sound like all of it is can be attributed to graft versus host disease. So trying to figure out what is what and coming up with supportive measures uh, to to try and make you feel better on the road to recovery would be essential. Excellent. And Dr. Alhamsi, do you want to add anything to that? No. Okay. All right. Excellent. Okay. Um, and um, so another online qu uh, question. Um, so um, how do I know whether my GVHG is chronic or acute? It's been a month since my transplant. I'm getting rashes and stomach pain a few the last few days. What are the chances that my symptoms are just acute? That's a kind of general question, so perhaps... Uh, as a jumping off point, it sounds like. I'd be happy to answer this question. Uh, this yes. Uh, yes. So like I said earlier, typically acute GVHD is sort of, you know, early after transplant uh, during the first 100 days, three, four months or so, and chronic GVHD, you know, uh, happens later. Like I explained, you know, sort of uh, the limits are uh, a little bit, you know, muddy these days uh, with uh, changes uh, uh, with the way we do uh, transplants. But if we are talking about, you know, skin rash happening a month after, this is certainly, you know, more uh, consistent with acute GVHD. Uh, that's, that's too early, you know, to even consider chronic GVHD. But I'd like to stress the fact that, you know, as Dr. Chen just uh, said, not every skin rash is GVHD, and that's something extremely important to keep uh, to keep in mind. There are many other things that can cause skin rash after transplants, including you know reaction to drugs, sometimes you know interaction between you know drugs and uh, uh, photosensitivity can result in skin rashes, and so on. So I think it's very important you know to have that skin examined, uh, potentially biopsied if needed to determine that this is GVHD. But I think the specific question of this is acute or chronic GVHD, if it's happening after uh, a month after the transplant, uh, this is acute GVHD. So thank you. Um, and um, so here's an interesting question. Um, uh, actually, I'll, for Dr. Chen, if the donor recipient HLA human leukocyte antigen match are the same, will I still develop or could I still develop GVHD? So a general question, if you could address that. Dr. Chen? Sure. Um, right. So uh, HLA matching uh, is, is done because uh, and generally done usually at eight or 10 or even 12 sites, depending on your institution. And these are just uh, let's call it 10 specific genes or proteins that are really important in your immune system. 
matching at these sites is uh, matching at the HLA is paramount to determine your risk of graft versus host disease. But finding a full match still means that the donor and recipient are different people. Uh, they're not identical twins. They just match at these sites. Uh, and there are many other sites that are different. And so uh, certainly even if the donor and the recipient are full HLA matches, as are the majority of most transplants done, uh, there is still a definite risk after graft versus host disease. I think Dr. Holmes mentioned the that every um, recipient after a transplant, even if they're HLA matched, as are most transplants, will receive a cocktail of uh, medications to prevent graft-versus-host disease. Even with our standard methods of prevention and emerging methods, such as uh, uh, what was mentioned being post-transplant cyclophosphamide, there is a definite risk still of developing acute or chronic graft-versus-host disease. Now, Depending on the type of matching, depending on other clinical factors, um, the one's risk uh, can be less or greater, uh, but there is definitely still a risk uh, with every transplant for graft-versus-host disease. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, um, so, and another question, um, this is for Dr. Alhamsi, um, and this question about dry mouth. Um, so... Um, wondered about tips for dealing with dry mouth. Specifically, I've tried so many things, but it's still so uncomfortable to eat food and brush my teeth. Any thoughts about uh, that in terms of any recommendations or? Um... Sure. It's, it's a difficult problem and, and certainly can impact uh, the quality of life of patients. Uh, so the first thing is to have a good, uh, you know, oral examination and see what's going on and then decide exactly, you know, what to do. But simple things that, you know, patients find, um, you know, useful um, is, is uh, showing gums, believe it or not, can increase the amount of, of uh, saliva. Uh, using lemon drops and this kind of things could be, could be uh, sometimes enough, you know, to produce more saliva and help patients. Um, you know, there are certain medications that we can use to increase the amount of saliva. I do not find them very, very effective, and they have some, some side effects. Um, if there are some other manifestations, you know, in the mouth, uh, sometimes using uh, topical treatments such as, you know, mouth rinses with, with uh, steroids uh, uh, could be useful, you know, controlling some of these uh, symptoms. And certainly, you know, if need is, and especially if this is part of sort of more uh, systemic problem, chronic GVHD, treating chronic GVHD with systemic treatments, steroids, or one of the newer agents might make uh, a difference. Um, I would like also to say it's extremely important to follow uh, clearly with the dentist and make sure, you know, you get a, a good uh, oral examination and maintain, you know, good oral hygiene is extremely important. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Um, Chen. I have issues with C. diff. Um, is it possible for C. diff to come and go on its own without treatment? Caroline, I missed the last part of that question. Can you repeat that? Oh, um, I have issues with C. diff. Is it possible for C. diff to come and go on its own without treatment? Uh, well, part, so part of that is we don't know the natural history of untreated C. diff because if we diagnose C. diff, we uh, always will treat it. So... You know, the question is difficult to answer because I've never watched, observed somebody uh, with untreated C. diff to understand if their stools will fluctuate uh, here and there. Uh, what I will say is that most cases of C. diff with our uh, medical armamentarium today can be successfully treated. It is a uh, very common infection because of how much time our patients spend in the hospital and their exposure to antibiotics. I think large studies would say that in patients admitted for transplant, uh, C. diff infections are diagnosed in, in about 10 to 15% of patients. Um, there is a subset of patients, uh, certainly even after treatment and resolution, C. diff can come back. Uh, it's generally thought because one's microbiome or the diversity of the bacteria in the bowels is, is uh, very narrow, uh, which is unhealthy. And so C. diff can ultimately outcompete some of the normal flora and cause disease again. 
so there are other methods to treat the C. diff besides the oral antibiotics that are usually used. Uh, these have most recently involved uh, what we call FMT or uh, fecal microbiota transplantation, meaning stool transplants from healthy people to replenish uh, the diversity of one's uh, flora. That that in itself is becoming, as I had mentioned, a well-studied uh, avenue uh, to improve outcomes after transplant, even possibly graft-versus-host disease, but these are all preliminary observations. So, sorry, this is a long-winded answer to saying it could come and go. Uh, we usually always treat it, and if it is coming back, you definitely should see uh, your team to diagnose if it's coming back already, if it's resistant, and talk about methods uh, to uh, eradicate it. And uh, thank you. And this will be our last question uh, for Dr. Ohamsi. Um, I had IBS and acid reflux before my transplant, and after the transplant, I have a lot of problems with gastric issues. So my question is, does pre-existing issues add to GVHT of the stomach? And I suppose one could generalize that. Do pre-existing conditions in general add to um, issues with GVHT as well? Sure. Uh, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, um, as you know, is an autoimmune disorder. Um, and because uh, patients with transplant, uh, they get the immune system replaced and they are often immunosuppressed. It's actually not uncommon for patients' symptoms to resolve. And patients with inflammatory bowel disease oftentimes can experience uh, prolonged periods of remission after transplantation. Um, but, you know, uh, whether to differentiate this is related inflammatory bowel uh, uh, syndrome, what you are describing, or transplant, um, I think, you know, one would need more information and sort of keep um, um, open mind. Um, certainly, there are ways, you know, to differentiate between, uh, between the two, uh, including clinical history and potentially, you know, scope and biopsies. Um, so, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, it's difficult to comment on a specific case, uh, but a lot of inflammatory bowel syndrome get better after transplant, if any, but patients with inflammatory bowel syndrome can also have GVHD, and certainly, you know, doing careful assessment to try to uh, sort out things is, is very important. Excellent. Well, I actually want to thank our speakers. I know we could go on for quite a bit more time with the questions we have, but I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal, just amazing. And um, I do, uh, in wrapping this program up now, I just want to say uh, that I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank all of you who have asked such great questions online and all of you who have been listening. And perhaps most importantly, um, as we conclude the program today, um, for those of you who asked a question, we, uh, a number of our speakers have said this. Please take that information back to your treating healthcare team. Perhaps use this as a role play before you ask your questions of your physicians. It's really important. And for those of you who like to go to credible resources for getting information before you speak to your physicians, although really we do want you to go right to your healthcare team, and we want you to go to places that are very credible. Um, and we will send you when you get your evaluation, which will be probably in about uh, probably next week, early next week, um, for the program today. Um, we would like you to complete the evaluation, but we also will provide you with links to resources that you can use um, that would be helpful to you in getting information. Um, very credible resources like the National Cancer Institute and many other major organizations that are perhaps household no words known to all of you that are really very valuable to get information from. Now, in addition from that, for those of you who wish to pursue any of the services at Cancer Care, you can simply contact Cancer Care for the emotional, social, practical, and financial assistance that we offer. And I should also say that we do have the COVID Financial Assistance Fund as well. And so we do have um, vibrant programs, and we do want you to take advantage of them. Um, and they can be very helpful to you. And we're simply a telephone call away or indeed a, um, a mouse click away if you need to. You can email our, or you can go to our website as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I also, in leaving and ending the program today, I don't want any of you to feel that you're alone. Well, I do know that you all feel alone sometimes. It's normal to feel alone. But I also want you to now know that you're part of a very large community of support. Your healthcare team, which consists of many different members, and also many, many organizations that are out there that you can call. Some you can call 24 hours a day. Um, some you can call during business hours. 
but they are available to you and do take advantage of them. They can provide you support, particularly now in the context of social distancing where people feel, really do feel like there's no one they can really, there's no one right there in their, in their, with them in their home sometimes if, if you're living alone. So that really um, the phone, the uh, online support groups, the telephone support group, just having a voice to talk to is very, very important, uh, more important now than ever, ever before. Um, so again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.